All right, well, uh, good morning again, church family. Um, great to be with you uh, and excited to be in God's word as always. And so if you have a Bible with you this morning, I hope you do. Turn with me to Philippians chapter 4. Philippians chapter 4. Uh, we've been studying through this letter together for about three uh, months now. And we're finally uh, about to wrap it up next week. Next Sunday, we're wrapping up the book of Philippians. Hard to believe. Uh, I hope that you have grown from it. Uh, and that you've been encouraged uh, by it. Uh, We know Paul wrote this letter uh, to a church that he deeply loved. Uh, He cared uh, for them. Uh, He is mindful of the trials and the persecution the church in Philippi faced. And so in the midst of his own imprisonment, Paul is writing this in prison, he writes this letter uh, to this church to anchor them to anchor them, to root them in the supreme worth and beauty of Jesus Christ. And the way that Paul does that is by reminding the church that to have Christ, uh, that to be in Christ, to be known by Jesus, uh, loved by Jesus, to be forgiven by Jesus, to be promised uh, an everlasting future with him is true gain. It's true gain. So he says in chapter 1, verse 21, he says, to live is Christ and to die is gain. And and why is that true? Why is that true? Well, because being with Jesus, he essentially tells them, being with Jesus, having Jesus is greater, it's better than anything in this world and what it has to offer. Well, now today, we turn to the final chapter of this letter. And in chapter 4, verses 2 through 9, what we have is essentially Paul's final encouragement and charge to the church. Um, All of his arguments have been made. All of the lengthy teaching now is is done. And now he just gives the church some some parting notes uh, to help us press on. And to make sure, to make sure that we see Jesus for who he really is, all that he has done, and who we are in him. Now, I just want to say this before we get into it as well, though, is that you know, going into these verses, we have to know it's a little bit unique. Um, and it's actually a, a, quite a challenge to, to study. Because there really isn't a common thread or thought process here. Um, essentially... Uh, Paul, he's already, again, he's finished the letter almost. And now at the end, it's almost like he's just writing down some bullet points, some important things for us to be mindful of, to to remember before he then signs off and wishes the church well. I was trying to think about what this would be like today. And I was thinking it'd be like, um, as a kid, I remember um, I I would love sleeping over at a friend's house. Right, my neighborhood kids, and you know, it, I, it was a big deal when I got to be like, I don't forget how old, maybe eight, nine, ten years old, my, like my first sleepover at a friend's birthday party, and I was thinking, you know, what happened? My parent, right, my mom drove me over, right, got my sleeping bag, backpack, whatever, drove me there, pulled up to the house, but before I opened up the car door and got out, like, what did my mom do? What any mom would do, right? Hey, don't forget. Brush your teeth, don't sleep too late, don't cause trouble, eat every single thing that's given to you, right? Be respectful, you know, all that, right? 
Make sure it's not clean. You clean up after yourself. He's going through the list of things with me. Yeah, mom, I got it. I got it. I got it. Right. And then it run off and didn't hit her anything she said. Right. But, but that's what, that's what moms do. Right. And so Paul, Paul gives, gives the church and us some, some final things uh, to work towards when it comes to our faith, uh, being more like Christ and, and displaying Jesus's worth to the world. He's like, hey, I, I've taught you all these things, but don't forget, remember, remember, do this, do this, do this, right? If you want to, uh, if you want to, to be more like Christ, help other people be like Christ, do these things. And so that being said, again, we open up chapter four and, and let's keep in mind where we've been as well. Let's remember the context. Paul in this section, just before this, he's just encouraged us. He just finished encouraging the church to press on, to press on to make Jesus our own. Why? Because Jesus has made us his own. Paul says, in light of the reality that Jesus has made us his, in light of the reality that Jesus has set us apart, given us a new identity as citizens of heaven, by grace, through faith, we press on. Right? We strive to be more like Jesus, to know Jesus more fully, to trust him more completely. And now in our passage today, we're going to see Paul provide us some additional ways to do that, uh, to press on. And so let's work through these together, starting with Paul's encouragement to press on in our relationships. That's where we begin today. Press on in our relationships. He's helping us to know, as he concludes the letter, how to strive to be more like Christ, how to press on. And he does that first by telling us to press on in our relationships. This is all about unity. Chapter 4, verses 2 through 3 says this, I entreat Euodia and I entreat Syntyche. I'm not going to read those two names again. I'm just going to say women. (laughs) I was listening. (laughs) I shouldn't do this. I was listening. I'm going through it and... uh, I, like, I clicked, how do you pronounce Yodia? And it's like on YouTube. You should do this. Just go, it's hilarious. You click and it's like, Yodia, Yodia, Sintike. And I'm like, you know, I'm saying it over and over again. They don't teach you that in seminary, how to pronounce every single name in the New Testament, okay? So I'm like, don't blow it, right? So I got through it. I'm not going to say their names again. <laughs> Entreat these women to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are written in the book of life. So, so what's going on here? What's happening? Well, apparently there are these two women in the church and they are divisive. Okay? It's, it's a major issue. And, and we don't know much about them, but we do know that although they have this problem Paul says that they are committed to the gospel, right? They have labored with Paul. We're not sure, but maybe they even helped Paul start this church in Philippi. But now time has passed, and there's a major division, disunity between these two ladies. Now, we don't know what it's about. We don't know the issue. uh, But that's actually not the concern. That's not Paul's concern. The concern is the division that it was creating between them and perhaps within the gathering itself. And and Paul is so serious about this that he actually calls them out publicly by name. 
right? It's a big deal. You, you can easily read past that and just forget. It would be like the equivalent. Imagine, right? Some of you are going to be still for a second. But imagine I got up here, right? And there's a conflict that I'm made aware of. This is what happens. This is what Paul does. And I hear about a conflict that happens within our gathering. And so I stand up here and I'm like, hey, just so you know, person A and person B are having issues. And I in, I'm compelling you, telling you, as a gathering, get around them and help. Can you imagine if I did that? Can you imagine, right? Don't cause division here. No, I'm kidding, all right? <laughs> okay? But that's essentially what Paul is doing. He calls them out publicly by name. And why? Right? Why does he do that? Right? But was it because he was being mean-spirited? Right? Because he didn't care for them? Of course not. Right? Not at all. Don't forget how he addresses them in verse 1. We looked at it briefly last week. Chapter 4. He says, Therefore, my brothers and sisters, and what does he say? Whom I love and long for, my joy and my crown. And then he goes into I entreat you, these women, right? And so this is not the language. This is not the language, the vocabulary of someone who's upset or trying to embarrass or demean another person, right? Paul loved them. He loved this church. And so why was Paul so concerned, again, to the point of stating their names publicly? Well, it's because, it's simple. It's because of what the church is. It's because of what the church is. Right? Keep in mind, just in this letter alone, Paul has called them, and he's called us saints, partakers of grace, lights in the world, citizens of heaven, a people who await a savior and a new resurrected body. Right? We are brothers and sisters together. We are the family of God, whose name, he just said, whose names are written together in the book of life. And so this matters. This matters because these are not just two ordinary people. And this is not an ordinary gathering of people. This is Paul's family. They, like him, are the redeemed people of God who are united together in Christ, which means that division and disunity is literally contrary to the very nature of who they are as God's new people. Right? Listen, unity is so important within the family of God, which is why Paul repeatedly in this letter, he calls us to it. He has told us, stand firm in one spirit. He said, have the same mind. Have the same love. He says, be of one accord. Be of one mind. Right? He repeats this theme over and over because unity matters. And again, why? Well, unity matters because, because it is actually, it's literally a visible picture to us and the world. Not just who we are now, but what we will one day be fully. Right? We know this. Satan hates unity among us. And that's why he actively is seeking to isolate you, right, and to separate you from the body of Christ. And now an issue of separation has come up in Philippi. And so Paul gives advice here on how to deal with this conflict that they're facing. And what does he say? Well, he says, first, agree in the Lord. Agree in the Lord. 
And he actually, it's interesting, he encourages both of these ladies in this. So if we want to press on in our relationships, promote unity, press on in unity, particularly with other followers of Jesus, we need to strive to do that in the Lord, to agree in the Lord. And what's Paul's point there? Well, his point is that people who are in Christ, in the Lord, right, should not insist ever, actually, on their own way. Wait, we shouldn't refuse to forgive. We, we, we shouldn't slander. We shouldn't ignore one another, gossip about each other, because, again, that is completely inconsistent to who we are in Christ as the family of God. Right? We know this. Jesus forgave us when we did not deserve it, which means we can forgive others when they don't deserve it. Right? Jesus graciously came for us even when we were running from him, which means we too should move towards others when they have moved away from us. Right? Jesus does not, thank God, he does not bring up our past failures or hold our sin against us. And so we must not do that with others as well. And again, notice, notice again, he encourages both of these ladies, not just one of them, both of them to agree in the Lord. Right? He's saying to both parties, initiate, engage one another, pursue each other. And I think that's important because, you know, oftentimes I think, and you know this, we don't actually do this, right? We don't do this, especially if we are the ones that are hurt or offended, right? We avoid, we avoid, we wait until the other person comes to us to ask for forgiveness. Or maybe we just break that relationship altogether. But Paul says, no, that's not what followers of Jesus do, right? We move towards one another just as Jesus has moved towards us and continues even today to move towards you. And of course, sometimes things are so bad. It gets so bad between people. It requires other people to step in. And that's the case here. Paul asks the church for help in reconciliation here. And listen, if you ever find yourself in that place, I I hope you don't, but inevitably you will find yourself in the middle of a conflict between people if you're ever in that situation. I think the message here is, first, don't take sides. We tend to do that. Because that's not the goal. The goal isn't taking sides. The goal is to keep your heart pure. Remember that the goal is unity and primarily God's glory, period. Right? That's the aim. And so, look, how we engage conflict, here's the bottom line. How we engage conflict should always be framed and shaped by the gospel. The gospel should change everything, including how we handle relational conflict. And so Paul says, press on to become unifiers. And so let me ask you this morning, how are you doing with that? Um, If you were to give an assessment of your relationships today, how are you doing when it comes to unity and pursuing reconciliation with others? I don't mean waiting, waiting around because someone hurt you and waiting for them to ask for forgiveness. I mean even going to that person who has hurt you and pursuing out reconciliation, right? Forgiven people forgive. 
people who have been pursued by Christ pursue. That's who we are. And so let's become more like who we are in this. Number two, number two, press on in joy. Press on in joy. You want to be more like Jesus? Strive to be more like him, to make him ours. Press on in joy. We see Paul, again, he's just moving through these quickly in the text. He's summing things up. And so he says, get your relationships right. And now he says this in verse 4, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Familiar verse, I think, to a lot of us. Well, like unity, like unity, Paul mentions rejoice or joy a lot in this letter. He actually mentions it a lot more than unity. I, I believe I've mentioned this before, but you can find around 14 references to the word rejoice or joy in Philippians alone. And what that tells me, or anyone who's studying this letter, is that it's really important to the Lord that as a follower of Jesus, that we are joy-filled people. It's, It's very important to the Lord. And let's keep this in mind as well, right? Paul is writing this. Don't miss this. Paul is writing these words from prison, Right? He's not writing this from a vacation home. Right? He's not sitting down on a beach, like writing out a postcard, like sandals in the sand, watching the sunset. Right? Hey, rejoice in the Lord always. He's so good. Right? It's not what's going on. He's in prison, chained to a Roman soldier, writing these words. And by the way, knowing that he is likely going to die, be executed okay, for his faith in Christ very soon. And so... I think it's safe to say, right, Paul is not talking about circumstantial joy here, but a joy that goes beyond our circumstances. He's telling us that there is a true and genuine joy that comes from rejoicing in the Lord. And being in the Lord is really the key. That when I have Jesus and when I view everything in my life through the lens of the gospel, I will always have reason to rejoice. You see, when we become a new creation, when we become citizens of heaven, it's amazing, an amazing thing happens. Our joy actually relocates from our circumstances to an unchanging and unimaginably good savior and king. A shift happens. And in light of that, because that's taking place, I rejoice always. Again and again, I rejoice. Now, now of course, we, we know this, but we still struggle with this, right? All of us do. And that's because regardless of what we know to be factually true, regardless of what is factually true, Our joy is so often connected with nothing bigger than our circumstances, right? I know that's definitely true of me, and I don't think I'm alone in that, right? And so that means when things are good, again, sun's out, I got good meal in front of me, good iced coffee in front of me, like I'm good, right? I'm good, feeling good, full of joy, right? I got the joy, joy, joy. You know the song, down in my heart, right? I'm good to go, right? I got my Ethiopian Yirgachev, right, Paul? Right, all right? I'm good to go, right? My iced coffee. But when things are off, when things are off, going badly around me, when my circumstances aren't the, the way that I want them to be, 
This happens. I lack joy. I do. I lack joy. Life is bad, right? How long, oh Lord? You gotta, like, things are bad. And Paul is saying we need to anchor our joy in something that transcends our circumstances. He says, rejoice in the Lord. He's saying, rejoice in Jesus. Anchor your hearts in the joy that flows from knowing him. Rejoice in his goodness, in his grace, in his mercy. Rejoice in knowing his patience towards you and me despite our failures. Rejoice in knowing that he will never give up on us. He will never let us go. We will be with him forever. We have reason today to rejoice. And listen, listen, this joy, this real continual joy, right? It isn't about being fake, right? So don't, don't miss this, right? Church people, I'm in that. Church people can be fake in that way. They come here, how are things going? Amen, oh, it's so good, right? Everything's good. You put a fake smile on your face. That's not joy in the Lord, right? We don't ignore pain, right? That's not who we are. And we don't ignore our trials. We don't ignore our trouble, right? This joy in the Lord, it still permits tears and sorrow and heartache, right? Those things are real and they are felt. It's just that those things don't destroy ruin this joy. So listen, we need to understand that we were actually created. It's a beautiful thing. You today have to, you were created for joy. You were created actually to find joy. And every single human being, this is true of, has an innate built-in desire to be filled with joy. We want joy. And God, in his wonder and majesty, has made it so that we can actually find that joy, the highest joy in him. And so the question for us today is, where do we go to find joy? Where do we go? Paul is calling us to press on to find our deepest joy in Jesus Christ. Not in our feelings, but joy rooted in the truth of what God is, or who God is, what he has done and what he has promised to those who are his. Number three. Number three. We're just moving through these. There's five of them. We got to move quick. Number three. Press on reasonably. Press on reasonably. We see this in verse five. He says, let your reasonableness be known to everyone. Interesting translation there. Some translations say, um, let your gentleness be known to, uh, to everyone. Both of those translations are okay, all right? It's, they're trying their best in English. The idea here, either way, is to have strength under control. That's what he's saying. It's, this is strength under control. And so this is a call to be sensible, uh, again, to be reasonable. Uh, but I think a good word here, it's being steady. It's, it's, it's rooted and when it says, let it be known to everyone, what he's really saying there is, let it be obvious to all. Right? Let it be obvious to all. So let your steadiness be obvious to everyone who's around you. Paul is telling the church, let the reason for your joy, let the meaning, the meaning of your life 
be evident to everyone through how you live, through how you do relationships, through how you raise your kids, through how you manage your money, and through how you engage in conflict. It says, press on to make it obvious that Jesus is the center of your life, that he is immensely uh, worthy and valuable to you. Right? James 3.17 says this. We don't have it on the screen. You can listen. James 3.17 says this. The wisdom from above, it is pure, peaceable, here's the word, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy, good fruits, impartial, and sincere. What James is getting at here is that when we anchor ourselves in Jesus and the truth of the gospel, we will grow as gentle people. In other words, we will be steady. We will display the beauty of Christ. Right? We know this, right? Anyone, anyone can be a contrarian. Right? Anyone can be a cynic. Anyone can be argumentative. Right? Anyone can be critical. Anyone can be unreasonable. But we believe, we believe in a God who graciously saves sinners and who loves sinners, a God who pours out upon us grace upon grace. And that should make us reasonable, gentle, gracious people who are rooted and therefore patient towards others. Right? See, the more, the more that we grasp how much grace we've received from the Lord, Right? How patient, how patient he has been with us. How kind he is towards us. The more that we grasp that, or maybe I'll say it this way, to the degree that we understand that, that will be the degree to which we live reasonable, steady lives. Right? And so ask yourself today, a lot of reflective questions. Ask yourself, would others describe you as reasonable? Right? Maybe... They don't know you follow Jesus, but do they see you as being steady? Do they see you and look and say, oh, that person, they're strong, but they are very under control, right? That's hard to do. You could be strong, but are you under control? We can be steady always. Why? No matter what happens, Earth shakes, things move, bad things happen. We can always be steady. Because as followers of Jesus, we know, this is good news, by the way, we're not in control. Right? We never have to take matters into our own hands. You're not responsible, ultimately, right, for this life. You're not. I'm not. So Paul is inviting us to press on reasonably in Jesus to the point that our reasonableness would be known to everyone who we encounter. Number four, Paul calls us to press on in our anxieties. Press on in our anxieties. This is a difficult one. Starting at the end of verse five, Paul says this. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything. But in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. Uh, this is one of the most well-known passages in Philippians. And uh, it's one that's memorized a lot, as you can watch our, our kids memorize it too. And maybe the reason we memorize it is because so many of us know what it's like to struggle with anxiety. 
right? And why do we get anxious? Why do we get anxious? And um, this is uh, part of my own experience. Some of you know my story. Um, I, I grew up in around five or, or, or six years old. Actually, my parents uh, made a decision, the right decision, to bring me um, to counseling. I was seeing a psychologist, um, and I was, yeah, I diagnosed, oh, yeah, he has anxiety, and struggled with that for a, a, a large portion of my life. And so I say this, um, why do we get anxious? Partly out of experience, okay? So I'm not disconnected or set apart from those of you who are anxious and being like, how are you going to tell me why I'm anxious? Um, I know, <laughs> okay? Um, I think a major part of the reason we get anxious, just in general, um, maybe we don't think of it this way, but the root of it is ultimately we believe we're alone. That actually we, we believe that we are powerless to control our lives And that we are defenseless against life's trials and troubles. There's nothing I can do. And of course, anxiety can come in many forms, right? There's a lot of reasons to be anxious. Money issues, health issues, work issues, uh, relational issues, personal issues. Get it? There's no shortage of issues that we can get anxious about. And so Paul here, what he does, I'm so glad he does. Paul gives us some invaluable help here in getting victory over our anxieties. So what does he say? What does he say? Well, first of all, first of all, I want to be clear about what Paul is not saying, actually. Because when we hear, um, don't be anxious, don't be anxious, I think sometimes we believe that that means having um, a sort of numb indifference. Okay? And I'm trying to think of, like, what's a good picture of that? Numb indifference. That'd be like, it's like being Spock from Star Trek. Okay? If you know, you know. And if you don't know, you should know. All right? Okay? Like being Spock from Star Trek. All right? But with, with Spock, what happens? Right? If you don't know the story, I'll try to make it simple for you. Right? With Spock, what happens? Right? They're on the Enterprise, Starship Enterprise. They're on the spaceship. Bad things happen. They always do. It's, it's a movie, right? Or it's a TV show. Something always goes bad. Things are going bad, right? The ship is going down. It's going to crash. It's on fire, right? Captain Kirk is like, Spock, like, do something. Like, it's the, we're going to crash. We're all going to die. And Spock is just there, right? He's buckled in, but he is there like a robot, actually. And he'd be like, what would he say? It seems reasonable by my calculations that we'll explode and not feel any pain. Right? That's what he would say. Like, we're, we're fine. Right? It's okay. We're, we're going to die. That's okay by my calculation. Yeah, it's reasonable. Right? He's not anxious. That is not what Paul is calling us to do okay? or who to be. Right? And this is, also, this is also on the other side of that. This is not promoting a, let's call it a hakuna matata philosophy. Okay? Like, whatever, man. Right? Everything's chill. Right? I'm not worried about anything. All right, like water on a duck's back, no problems. Hakuna matata, it means no worries, right, for the rest of your days, right? That's not the aim either. In my head last night, I was like, what if I just broke out like Broadway and just kept going? You know, it's like, would they stay? Yeah, no. <laughs> That's not the aim, right? Because we know, right, we know most of the things in life, most of the things in life that we're actually anxious about, they are, they are to some level worthy of concern. 
right? Like when we stress about money, it's because there's, there is like, there should be a concern, some sort of concern to provide. We want to provide. It's who we are, right? We care about people's health, right? And so we, there's a concern, there's a care, right? There are, are genuine concerns related to our future, and for a lot of us, it's because we actually want to do the Lord's will and want to follow his ways. We just don't know what to do, where to go, and when. Right? There's genuine concern. Right? There are real things out there that deserve our attention, our care, and concern. And so when Paul says, don't be anxious, it's not asking you to be um, unemotional or, or to throw out all your care or concern. But listen, this is important. The tension, though, the tension there, though, is to express care, to express concern, to feel the weight while simultaneously pressing into Jesus. In other words, I'll say it this way, we don't allow these potentially anxious situations to exist in the frame of our minds Without, uh, without God entering that frame or that picture. Right? And that's what we do. We're anxious, ultimately, because we have a framework that we keep God out of. And to not be anxious about my cares or concerns that are real, I have to see that situation, genuinely care for that situation, but then open that frame and allow God to enter in. Right? That's what needs to happen. Someone's likes it, I said. All right, good, good. All right, someone's here. Good. All right. See, we can't connect. I did this for years, and I don't know why. I don't know. I don't know. Maybe it's because how we memorize it. For years, I did this, though, and I want you to see this. Uh, if, can you go back to the script? Is it up there already? Good. Can you put the scripture back up there? Philippians 4, 5b through 6. You know what we do? I did this for a long time. Someone's studying the Bible. I disconnect verse 5, the end of verse 5 with verse 6. Don't disconnect verse 6 from verse 5. Paul says, don't be anxious. Why? Read the the semicolon beforehand. What does it say? The Lord is at hand. Meaning, the Lord is near. He's saying, The Lord is literally saying close, in proximity to those who believe and follow him. It also means, though, he's near in that he's coming back at any moment. right? And we are waiting for that day. Amen? And so I'm speaking again from my own experience here. But when I I take the time to pause, to be still, when, when I talk to the Lord genuinely and reflect on the reality that Jesus is literally close to me, that he sees me, he's with me, that he's coming back for me. My anxious mind, heart, spirit, and thoughts, they just seem to naturally melt away. And that's ultimately what Paul is getting at at the rest of verse 6. He tells us, go to the Lord. That's the answer. Go to the Lord. In everything, he says, go to God. And he tells us, actually, three ways to approach God approach the Lord here. First, he says, prayer, okay? Pray. And this is just in the broad sense. He's saying, you know, pour out your souls to God. Share your fears, share your struggle, share your hopes, right? Just talk to him. Tell him what's on your mind, what's on your heart, what you're thinking, what you're feeling. 
And then he says, with supplication, right? And what is that? Well, that's just a narrower term that focused specifically on bringing the Lord our needs. Essentially, supplication, it's asking him for help. It's asking God for help. And then he says, do all this with thanksgiving, with thanksgiving. And so we pray and ask when we approach the Lord, we do it with a spirit that's not demanding, but grateful, content, a spirit that trusts God, knowing that however he answers, whatever the answer is, we know he loves us. He knows what's best for us. And what's amazing is, what's amazing is that when we approach God this way, when we go to him with our cares, with our anxiety, there's actually a promise. There's a promise. You see it there in verse seven. It says this, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Now, this is not a, a mathematical equation, okay? Um, like, here's what you do, right? You're going to go home, and you're anxious. And so, okay, like, you check out, like it's a checklist. You get on your knees, prayer, check. Supplication, check. Thanksgiving, check. And now peace, just come, and you're waiting, right? Here it comes, right? And you're waiting. All right, maybe that could happen, okay? I'm not going to discount what God could do, ever. But, but it's typically much more organic than that. That as we sit and wait and just when we're just with the Lord, when we're just with him, talking to him, crying out to him, thanking him for all that he is and all that he has done, you'll find that peace just naturally comes over you. Paul says that you'll actually be, it's an awesome phrase. He says that actually you'll be guarded by peace, which I love. It's actually a military picture here. This is military language. It's a picture um, of like a battalion Um, a group of soldiers that are surrounding or stationed around the city, protecting it. And you have to understand, right? Again, remember who the Philippians are. Philippi is a Roman colony. And so this would have been so meaningful to them, right? Philippi, we know it was surrounded by a wall, right? And on that wall stood soldiers day and night, day and night in shifts, guarding Philippi. And so what Paul is saying to them is, listen, church, he's saying in the same way, in the same way that those soldiers are literally guarding the physical city you're in, God's peace is just like that. It's surrounding you. It's guarding your hearts day and night when you go to him with your troubles. So a simple question that arises from this is, are we bringing our anxieties to Jesus? Right? It sounds so easy. But I know in my own life, he is often one of the last places I'm led to turn to when my heart is anxious. That just naturally, I don't know, it's our flesh. Ugh, right? You know this story. You're anxious about something. Our natural go-to is we got to fix it. I got to solve this. I got to figure this out. I got to have a conversation with someone else. Right? I got, I got to apply to this place or whatever, new jobs or new cities or research or, or what do we do? I got, I got to get a vacation. Right? We do that too. I just got to get away from a weekend. Right? I'm so anxious. I'm so weighed down. You know what the answer is? Beach or woods. That's what it is, right? 
That's what we do. And we just expect, well, now I'm not going to be anxious. And then you do that for the long weekend. And by Tuesday, you're anxious again. (laughs) You know this. That's who we are. Right? Paul is calling us to press on in our anxieties by prioritizing the Lord. Turn to him. Bring your trials, your troubles, and your anxious heart to him. And I actually, I challenge you. I dare you, I'll say it that way. Next time you're anxious, just try this. When's the last time you can genuinely say, when I felt anxious, I stopped, got away, I prayed, I asked, I thanked God, and then I waited for peace. When's the last time you did that? Like, actually tried that. Try it. See what happens. And then report back to me, okay? Finally, Paul invites us to press on in our thinking. Press on in our thinking. He says this, Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, he says, here's the key, think about these things. Paul is essentially saying here, he's saying, allow these, we'll call them good things, allow these good things to shape and form your minds. He's saying, saturate your mind and therefore your heart with these things. Ponder these things. And I honestly, I contemplated this. I I honestly could have spent an entire sermon on this. Um, I thought about doing that because it's just so important. Uh, Maybe another time. But what Paul is essentially getting at here is how we think, how we think, and what we think about deeply matters. In following Jesus, how we think and what we think about matters deeply. And why? Why? Because we tend to, we tend to become like what we think about the most. That tends to happen. So for example, If we harbor bitterness, or we harbor anger, or we dwell on fear, often, we tend to turn into bitter, angry, fearful people. Whereas when we focus more on what is true, and honorable, and just, and pure, and lovely, inevitably what happens over time is that there will well up within you, within me, a desire for more of those same things, right? And so this is actually one of the primary ways that we battle sin as well, by fixing our minds on things that are true, pure, beautiful, things that are worthy of praise, right? We ponder those things. We deeply consider them. So, for example, if jealousy or envy creeps into my mind, my response is stop, reflect, and I think and dwell on God's goodness and grace towards me. I think of his provision, all that he's taken me from and what he's brought me to. If I'm beginning to be filled with anger or hate, again, I stop, I reflect, and I think about God's patience towards me, his love towards me when I have wronged him in so many ways and gone my own way so many times. I hold on to these truths about Jesus in the, in the gospel. I keep them in my mind and my heart until those other thoughts fade away. Right? And look, 
Right? I can think of so many things in our world because you know, God has created it. So many things that are true and honorable and lovely and excellent. But what's most important is that we focus on the source of all of those things. And of course, we know Jesus Christ is the source, right? So start with Jesus, right? Dwell on him, ponder him, think about him, and then let everything else flow from there, right? We all know this. We all know this. There's so much, so much in our lives, so much going on, so much that takes up our thinking, right? Our schedules, our long hours at work, our spouses, girlfriend, boyfriend, taking care of kids, right? Think about what's next for me. Where should I go? What should I do? Like, it's hard enough to choose what I'm going to eat for dinner, right? A lot of things are flooding my mind, but our minds together. But if we want to press on, if we want our condition to align itself more fully with who we are in Christ, if we want to be more like Jesus, it actually, it really begins with your thoughts, and so let's strive to set our minds, to set, to actually place our minds on things that really matter. And then hold on to those thoughts close until your affections and your actions follow those thoughts. Close here. Paul calls us to press on in our thinking. And listen, we are all, all, being shaped by someone or something today, no matter what you think about Jesus. We are all, every one of us here, whether you're a follower of Jesus or not, we are all being profoundly shaped by what we are thinking about and dwelling on. And so, question, what occupies your mind today? What's your focus? Are you dwelling on meditating on regularly what is true. Paul here, to sum it up, Paul here is calling the Philippians and us to press on. That's been his message to us over and over and over again, right? Press on in our relationships, in joy, in our reasonableness, in our anxieties, in our thinking, right? That's his charge. Be like Christ. Walk in his ways not to earn our way to God, right? That's not the message here, right? We are made right with God by turning from our sin, turning from ourselves, and by turning to Jesus Christ, by trusting Jesus as Lord and Savior. But then once we are his, once we belong to him, following him, we press on because we believe that knowing Jesus more And being more like Jesus is where we ultimately find joy and a peace that surpasses all understanding. Paul tells us this in verse 9. He says this, What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things. And then what? And the God of peace will be with you. So you want everlasting joy today. You want a deep, profound, real peace. Paul's message to us is press on. Press on to know Jesus. Amen? Let me pray for you.